Welcome to the Going to Seed podcast. I'm your host, Shane Simonson, here with Joseph Lofthouse as well. And today we're talking to Raphael Mayer, who is a professional and amateur plant breeder working in Switzerland at the moment. So welcome, Raphael. Tell us a bit about your background. Uh, thanks a lot, uh, Shane and Joseph. I'm really happy to be here. So as Shane mentioned, I'm a professional and an amateur uh, plant breeder. And that's kind of weird. So my background is like I started working in horticulture around like, I think, 15 years ago. I did an apprenticeship, which is kind of usual to do for someone in uh, Germany or in Switzerland. So I'm German and I worked in market gardening, so growing vegetables and also in uh, ornamentals, in retail. And during uh, those years, I was really interested in all kinds of crops and I grew them uh, at home and even as a teenager i like what i just uh, told uh, shane i really loved just seeing all those exotic fruits in the supermarket taking seeds out and trying to grow everything so most plants died <laughs> as uh, every good gardener can assure you that it'll happen but i could grow finally everything from mango avocado physalis dragon fruit whatsoever so this was uh, kind of really fun and then after a few years as a gardener, I thought, okay, I want to take it to the next level and I want to go to uni to do like becoming an horticultural engineer. And it was also in this time when I started serious plant breeding. So my first plant breeding project was kind of something I didn't thought about doing. It was like I was into aquariums and so on, but I wanted, as I was kind of... <laughs> I didn't have a lot of money, so I wanted no tech fish tank with this, which is all self-supporting, which is like a ecosystem where the plants are purifying the water and so on. So I did a lot of research about all the water cycles, about the nutrients and so on. And so I sowed some seeds I got out from someone from India. And what I realized was it was like really diverse. So every plant was different. So I thought, oh, okay, I can select new varieties more or less. So, and then I propagated them through cuttings. So that's like the first step into plant breeding. And something else, which I did at the time was when I already started uh, working as an horticulturist at the nursery, we were working, we were selling some passion flowers. And for me, this was like Whoa, it's like a, a beautiful plant with the big showy flowers, exotic foliage, and then you get like the most delicious fruit you can imagine. So my thought was, hey, why can't I grow this here in Germany? And so most people would have stopped there. <laughs> and I did also stop there for a few years. I, I continued growing those plants for at least 10 years. But then I thought, okay, maybe I need to get down to it and Nobody is trying to do something about it to grow passion fruit and passion flower in Germany or in cold climates. So I'll do it. And so during my studies, I tried to focus everything, not everything, but most projects, most stuff I could do around this to make this happen. So, sorry, that was a long intro. I'll finish <laughs> it in, shortly. So when I was finished at the end, I had to write like a thesis. And so I thought, okay, let's go all in. Most people would write something about something normal uh, problem, which is relevant to the horticultural industry. And I thought, okay, nobody's going to care about uh, cold hardy passion fruit, but I don't care. Let's go with it. Because at least I have three, four months where I can really focus and, and do something uh, I enjoy. So I tried to go through all the literature I could go. I grew them for different species and varieties for a few years and I tried to assemble everything together. And that was really fun and it's like the biggest thing. And afterwards I thought, okay, I try, I would like to continue doing this, but where could I do this like on a big scale? Because on one hand, I need to earn my living. On the other hand, I don't want like classical plant breeding because I did also like an internship with a big plant breeding company in Sassaden, which was kind of, fun it was a really nice company but like i was in melon breeding and you had like 20 varieties of melon in front of you and you couldn't tell them apart because you had like all those standards and they need to be exactly one kilo exactly this color exactly like this and so at the end you had like 20 varieties which all looked uh, the same and that's for me like 
taking all the fun out of plant breeding. So my now boss, I contacted him, him because they were selling and they were doing a little thing with hardy passion flowers like 10 years ago. And he said, hey, why don't you want to come work for us? And so I said, uh, I don't know. And finally, I accepted. And for me, they had like, I had like two uh, conditions which I wanted to be fulfilled to work for them. And one was like, that I could collaborate with everyone how I wish, that I could share everything how I want to share it, which is really important for me. And the second one is like, if one day I would leave the company, I could get a copy of everything I did uh, and continue work for my own. And he was more than happy with this. And so uh, that's how I started working for. So a Swiss small Swiss company, which is essentially a nursery, but also doing lots of plant breeding which is called Lubera, and I'm doing now passion fruit breeding and a few other crops like on a bigger scale and which I'm really happy about. Amazing. Amazing. I'm so Good glad we you. got you on. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to circle back around to talk about the passion flowers in more detail oh, later. I, I can't think of a more perfect hyperdiverse genus. It's all over the place in people's greenhouses around the world. Yes. But before we get too much further in, can you tell us a bit about your growing conditions and the challenges that you mm -hmm. face? So this last years, I've been moving a little bit around. So the general growing conditions are those of uh, Central Europe. So you have a temperate climate with cool, cold winters. So depending on where you're living, it gets down to minus 10, minus 15, minus 20 degrees centigrade, not Fahrenheit. We've usually rather cool summers compared to most of like the US, where you have a continental climate and also um, kind of rainy summers. So depending on where you're living, it can be warmer and climate change is doing like we're getting more warm and even hot summers. But in general, it's like this. So you have like cold winters. They are not extremely cold, but gets frost and also like two digit frost. And in summer you have some, you have some uh, sun, but it's also rain. So you have all the problems associated like like the fungi and so on, which are really happy with this. And also the, um, yeah. Just quickly, do, like... the, do, do the cloud forest passion flowers actually like those summers? You just got to stop them from freezing in the winter? Uh, so it depends. Like where I'm living, I'm like in, uh, right now I'm living in, actually, so I'm term, I'm living in France and I'm working in Switzerland. So really <laughs> European, but yeah, that's kind of weird but so uh, where i'm it's kind of a little bit too hot but like other climates like i think there are some which would really thrive like in ireland like i know like in the islands in the channel between the british isles and france they have them growing outside so they really like those so if you're going like to northern germany they really love and also like the uk uh, ireland or Sarah, they're doing really fine for us, where we are living, we get sometimes also over 35 degrees centigrade, and that's something they don't like. So if you're going above 30 degrees centigrade, they are not happy. So I have some uh, right now growing on my balcony, and this summer they were like really sad. And now with like 5 to 10 degrees, uh, it's raining, it's really bad weather, and they're growing like crazy. So <laughs> figure it out. So uh, I think you mentioned you have around two hectares to work with. What's the soil like? Okay, so that's more or less what I have the surface of breeding I'm doing at the company. Here at home where I'm living, I have just a balcony. So most time when I did my plant breeding, I had like no surface at all. So, but now I'm really fortunate to have some surface, but it's still restrained because like Switzerland, you have mountains all over and people, so you don't have lots of space like in Australia or in the US. The soil, it's, so it's, directly next to the Rhine River. So it's some alluvial uh, soil, which is actually quite good uh, soil, what we get. But like the water table is really, if you're digging like one or two meters uh, below, you're getting into uh, the water. So uh, it's not very uh, profound. So water is not a problem. So you don't need to water a lot or anything like this. That sounds like a really good location for watermelons. If you can get the heat in the summer, <laughs> that soil is perfect for them. <laughs> yeah. So how do you manage your fertility and your weeds and your pests? Okay. So um, in general, 
as we're doing plant breeding, we don't uh, try to put too much onto it. So no pest management or just like for some crops, if it's really necessary, but like in plant breeding, you want to see if a plant gets sick, if there's a problem. So there's more or less none of uh, no pest management. So fertility, Sweet. Uh, yeah, because that's what we need. And we have a rotation system between different crops we're growing and they are doing, getting some compost and we are also rotating the uh, farmer. So they're, I don't know exactly what he's uh, using for the fertility. So we do some fertilization, but it's just like some basic fertilization once every three years. I just had a vision one day of somebody growing acres of your hybrid passion fruits and butterflies from Costa Rica blowing in that are like the size <laughs> of your face. They'd love it. <laughs> oh, okay. So I think we've got a general sense of what your priorities are in crop breeding and you've got so many projects that you're working on. So shall we move on and talk about specific projects? So can we start out talking about your work with the passion flowers in more detail? Okay. So yeah, hashed flowers is like more or less my main focus, or it has been for quite a few years now. As I mentioned, I've been growing passion flowers for at least 13 years now, doing it like on a bigger scale for four years, maybe something like this. So when I started, as I said, I was in the union and I had no garden or farm or anything. So what I did, I just put on like in a supermarket, there was like a blackboard where you could write your little announcements, you're looking for a flat or whatever, and said, hey, I'm a horticultural student. I tried to breed a hardy passion fruit. Anybody there to help me out? And there was this nice elderly lady who said, oh, that's great. I want to help you. And so I could use her rather big garden. And she also did like weeding and so for me. So that was really nice. <laughs> That's like a really privilege. Not everybody can do this. And so I started like with most breeding projects. First was like a variety trial and just to get to know what's out there, what happens. Because what I realized was that in passion fruit or in passiflora, what you read online, it's like 50% is complete BS. Uh, it's nonsense. People talking about stuff they have never really grown and everybody's just uh, copy pasting. And, yeah. So I tried lots of everything I thought could be interesting, bring it out. And so getting a feel for it, which what works, what are the real problems and so on. And then, as I mentioned during my studies, I really tried to dig a deep dive and seeing, okay, how can I do this problem on a systematic front? So I research like there are around 700 different species of passiflora depending on who's counting and taxonomy you know it's never easy and do, then, do you often find uh, that seed, seeds you purchase are mislabeled like the taxonomy yes. is a bit of a mess so you yeah. you, you it's, it's often yeah. worth buying the same species from different locations different sources because it yeah. could be something really different yeah so that's a, a big uh, issue so if you're buying seeds and also even if you're buying like named uh, cultivars and it's often like sometimes you have like uh, really a complete a mismatch. So sometimes you have like it's uh, one name which is giving, then you have the picture of a flower, which is a different species, then the picture of the fruit, which is a different species. <laughs> the plant you're getting is still another one. So it's a complete, a complete nightmare. And even like you have specialized companies, which are specialized nurseries, just in uh, passion flowers, and they are also mismatching them. So it's yeah it's kind of a nightmare so you have to get to know uh, the plant and so on and then getting it from different uh, sources and of course there are sources which are more viable no how do you say it? which are better do it yeah. like this than others yeah and did so, your breeding project mostly focus on the most cold hardy species and you kind of pollinated everything you could find onto that one kind of leader okay yeah, so that's a good question. So what I did, I first uh, compiled a list of all the species with edible fruit. So at the end, I got like 127 species. I guess that there are more, but edible ranges from delicious to uh, you won't die. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, from the cold hardness. So I tried to identify regions based on climate and on distribution of uh, passiflora species which would be interesting uh, for a breeding program. So there are four main regions like the US, you have then Argentina, which has kind of also a temperate climate. 
the high altitude of the Andes, which have like those cool, rainy uh, climate, then they're still in Brazil. Many people are astonished of this. There are mountains in, in the south of Brazil where you get also regularly uh, frost and snow and so on. So those are the four regions. And I tried to get uh, different species from all of those regions uh, to try them out. And also to see what is the genetic diversity among those species. So that's the biggest problem because sometimes you have like one clone in cultivation and everybody thinks so everything is like this clone, but often it's like a really bad one, which is riddled with the virus and so on. And so it's not representative of uh, the potential of this species. And so I'm working now mainly with Passiflora incarnata, which is from North America. It grows in the southeastern part of the US from Florida to like Pennsylvania, going to Missouri, Texas. So those are more or less like the area it's growing. And there's a huge genetic diversity and you have like different flower colors, food size, taste wise, and so on. So that's, so that's my main focus because it already works quite well. It has been cultivated for its food for centuries and it's kind of easy to work with. But I'm also working, of course, with intergenetic hybrids as they are kind of easy to make with Passiflora. But of course, when you're working with intergenetic hybrids, you have all kinds of problems with the fertility issues and so on. I, I was curious how generally interfertile are Passiflora species? Like, is there a mm -hmm. rough estimate about what your chances are of, of getting a, a species cross? Um, so it depends a lot on which species you're using. It is one of those species which has been crossed like really early. So like in the 1850s, you already got like intergenetic species and people were thinking at the time, what are you doing? You can't do this. And then there were a lot of them. And now we have like, so most of those hybrids are done by amateurs because it's kind of easy to do. What's good about peasant flowers is that you have like really big flowers. So yeah. you're not fiddling around with the really small flowers. You have lots of pollen, you have big stigmas and so on. So that's kind of fun and for me easy to do. Can you actually um, do it with your fingers? Like you wouldn't even Yeah, of course. Need... Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's nice. I'm doing it that's just nice. with my fingers. I don't yeah. use uh, brushes or stuff. Uh, it's too, you don't need it. So why bother? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, there are today, I think around like 2000 different known hybrids, different hybrids. So yes, there are like lots of possible hybrids, but depending on which species you're using and some species, you can use them as a pollen parent, others as a female parent. And also like you need the good clone of the species because some are more fertile than others and so on. But it's rather easy. So even if you're amateur, you have a few species around, you can try it and normally you'll get uh, some hybrid seed. Amazing. Amazing. So your goals for the crop are obviously cold mm -hmm. hardiness. How do you select yeah. for that? Okay. So actually what I learned that as I'm working mainly with the Passiflora incarnata, cold hardiness is not the big issue because it's uh, cold hardy to like minus 25 degrees centigrade which in most central European climates is not the problem. So I thought also about selecting for cold hardness because it's kind of difficult. Either you're doing like on the long term, and I know a guy in France who's doing it. So every time he creates a new hybrid or something, he waits 10 years till he continues. Because like in 10 years, you get a good average of which plants will survive and which won't, but like waiting 10 years is a long time. <laughs> So what I prefer is doing like Passiflora incarnata. So it's a vaceous perennial, which means it dies back in winter and regrows from its roots. The main problem in our central European climate is a lack of summer heat. So it won't die in winter. No problem. You can get it. It can get it as cold as it wants. But in spring, it will take a long time to regrow. So sometimes it will regrow just in June or July, which is like actually summer. And so it'll have just a really short uh, growing uh, period, uh, fruits won't ripen and so on. So what I'm selecting is for early emergence, early flowering, early fruiting. And I've seen like on my breeding field, a huge variability. And so I have like plants which are 
emerging in April and others which are emerging in late June. So I'm selecting for those like the 5%. So I've got around like 700 uh, plants. I'm trying to get like the 5%, which are early flowering, early fruiting and so on and working with those so that they will give a good crop in like most parts of Central Europe. One thing I'm curious about breeding a perennial crop with an annual, it's got the, the good manners to drop dead at the end of the season, even if it does yeah. everything perfectly. <laughs> do, do you find you have to do a bit of extra work when you're culling individual plants that don't meet the grade? So that's a very good question. And with Pacific Canata, you've got also some other problems because like it, it does propagate itself by runners. So it'll spread and plants will intertwine and so on. So <laughs> it's a mess to work with. It's really, but it's a beautiful crop, but it's a mess to work with. So what I'm doing and in general, what we're doing in our company, we're doing, we are not doing a negative selection, but just a positive selection. So if there are any plants I don't like, I don't care about them. So I'll grow those plants for one, two, three years, and then look which are the best. I'll select those, transplant them uh, somewhere else and get rid of everything uh, which was there. Mm -hmm. So that's like the easy way, especially with a crop like Pasporo and Canata, uh, where you have always to make sure that you got rid of everything. You can't just like cut one stem <laughs> and throw somewhere else. So <laughs> that's like the easy it, way how to do it. Is your ultimate aim for the home garden market for people to grow their own? Yeah. So the idea was what I'm selecting for. So primarily I'm always selecting for myself <laughs> because like I like it and I'm selecting for something I would like. But of course, as I'm working for a company, it should also at one point become a marketable product. So the main goal is for the home grower. So because that's kind of easy. You don't need all those uniformity criteria, all those shell life stuff and so on. Uh, you you don't care about those. You just need like a nice plant, which is good for the home garden. So uh, that's the first one. But I already got like, like just last week, there was a, a market gardener coming and he was like uh, really amazed. Like they're coming in there and they're saying, what? You can throw those crops uh, in Germany and just like mind blown. And so I think the next step would be for small market gardeners, because it's like a really great crop for them. You can sell uh, it per fruit, uh, like one, two euros per fruit. Yeah, you it's like a premium. A normal yeah. crop. Like you plant like a small plant like this in uh, spring and it, in the fall, you get like 50 fruits. Mm. So uh, you, your return on investment for a small uh, farmer, you get it immediately. So that's really cool. I'm curious, um, are you selecting for flavor already in the process? So the problem is like what I'm doing is more or less like domesticating a wild crop because most seeds I got are from the wild. And if you're domesticating a wild crop, you have like a long list of different tasks you want to accomplish and mm -hmm. you can't do everything. So I did once this list and I got like 25 different points. <laughs> of course, flavor is a big one because if I want people to try this fruit, they have usually they get like one shot because it's something new. And if they don't like it, they won't grow it ever again. But if they like it, even if it's not perfect, they will uh, grow it again and even try another one. So flavor, of course, is a really big one. I try to have like a good full package. So something that is kind of easy to grow, nice showy flowers, good fruit. So fruit size, how much arrow you get around the seeds, taste wise, and also uh, quantity wise. So like a good package, which won't be perfect in everything. Yeah, flavor is, of course, one of the biggest uh, issues because like if you're selling a passion fruit and it doesn't taste like anything, you're in trouble. I'm guessing Lubera is interested in releasing named clones, like superior early clones. Yeah. Yeah. Are you yeah. also open to distributing more diversity that still needs to go through selection, that there might be opportunities yeah. for, for mass selection in other locations? Yeah, of course. So I get like very often, like every week, people asking for our seats and so on. And for me, it was like just too stressful and I couldn't handle it, everything because I had so much to do. So what I'm doing, I'm also member of the Pacific Law Society International, which is just lots of amateurs and coming together and they, they love passion flowers. And 
So I'm donating, they have a seed bank and they're selling the seeds. And so every year I'm making like selections and donating my seeds to this organization. And so people can get the seeds from them. So for me, it's like a way to distribute the seeds without getting too much in trouble. I, I think uh, well, I think it's also useful to raise the bar on how committed people need to be to yep. join the project, that you're not just giving seeds to everyone who yep. may not be dedicated to looking after it, because it's very precious in this early stage. Mm -hmm. So I'm really, I'm really happy. Like, I'm doing this also because, like, if people wouldn't have done this with me, I wouldn't have started. Like, in the beginning, there was this guy, Ethan Nielsen, who worked with also with the Passiflora and other stuff. And I saw like he wrote on his blog and online and I thought like, whoa, that's so cool. And so I wrote him and uh, and he just uh, sent me seeds for free from uh, the US. And this is like the basis of my breeding program. So mm -hmm. if he wouldn't have done this, I don't know if I would be here today. So for me, it's also important to pay it forward. But as you said, like I want to see people who are really interested, who are who really want to do it like there are just people wanting to have free seats and yeah mm -hmm. that's like just it costs a lot of time and effort for me and at the end nothing will come out of it yeah 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 no that's perfectly sensible and it's worth pointing out too that you could be jeff bezos and you can't just will seeds into existence you rely on other people other collectors wild habitats so many resources all over the planet that you kind of at the mercy of and at the luxury of when they do finally go your way. We might skip over talking about your cucurbits because we spent so much time in the Passiflora, but I bet it's so interesting. No, 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 not at all, not at all, not at all. We, we love covering, we want every guest to kind of venture into different areas so that every episode offers something new. But I see that you mentioned working with raspberries and blackberries. Particularly, I'd love to learn more about creating artificial polyploids, because I think this is a really useful technique that not many people realize you can do in a home garden. With a little bit of care, you might want to talk about that. So getting back to the subject, the company I'm working for, Lubera, we have been working with cane berries, so which are raspberries and blackberries for over 30 years. And we've selected the a lot of different varieties of uh, especially raspberries so everything from yellow red purple black ones dwarf ones and so on and so the idea was how could we do something new something uh, really interesting something better and the idea was to recreate hybrid berries so there are some old hybrid berries like many people know the logan berry from judge logan in california which was uh, selected uh, I think uh, uh, at least 120 years ago. Boysenberries and, from uh, that period as well, yeah, I think. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so boysenberries actually like a descendant of the Loganberry. So most of those berries people know, like boysenberry and there are a few others, are actually just descendants of this old chance uh, seedling yet. It's um, worth pointing out too, before we move on, do you know that cane berries were only domesticated in the Middle Ages? Like it was, no. it was relatively recent or is there, is there more to the no, story? Even, no, even more recently. So, oh, wow. so raspberries and blackberries have been select, uh, collected from the wild for a long period, but like real domestication started like 150 years ago, something like 1850, something like this. Wow. So if you have like today, a raspberry or a blackberry, most of them are like just maybe five generations dating back to like wild ancestry. So they are kind of just semi-domesticated. Mm. And if you're going like also like blueberries just started like in the 1900s. Mm. So now it's like one of the biggest berries out there. So uh, macadamia uh, was domesticated very close to me 50, yeah. 80 years ago. So this kind no, of thing happens just, all the time and people can participate course. in it. <laughs> of course. Mm. No, that's like, because one of the biggest subjects I'm interested in also is like domestication of new crops and people always think, okay, there's something that happened like a few thousand years ago and now there's nothing to domesticate. Mm. No, there are like <laughs> hundreds and thousands of species you can work with. Mm. So going back to the cane berries. So I did a little bit of research, how it was done in the past and what we can do. And we figured out that today we have like really better varieties of raspberries and of blackberries than we had like 50 or 100 years ago. So we have primocane meat varieties of both blackberries and raspberries, which means that they are producing fruit on 
the canes on from the this year. So normally most cane berries like raspberries they have a two year cycle. So you the cane grows, you get just leaves, and then in the second years you get flowers and fruit. But if you can have like a primal cane, yeah, this is cool because you have a shorter cycle and it's easier to manage. Yeah. So you this both for raspberries, which has been around for a long time, and now also for blackberries, which has been around for now like 25 years. And you have also spineless raspberries and blackberries. You have like really big fruited, flavorful, and so on. And also with blackberries, you have mainly two different populations. So you have the East Coast blackberries, which are based on Rubus ursinus, which are like the trailing blackberries, they're really long. And you have the upright West Coast blackberries, which are based on Rubus alingensis, and they're like really upright and they are normally tetrapod. So our idea was crossing those tetraploid upright blackberries with uh, the raspberries. The problem is those are tetraploid and the raspberries are diploid. So you need first to create tetraploid raspberries because otherwise you will get just the sterile or you won't get any seed at all. Hmm. For this, there's a technique which is which has been known for at least 100 years where you use some toxins like there two main known ones. One is colchinitin, which is from the... Autumn crocus. Autumn yeah, crocus. That's yeah. Autumn crocus. So, and so what happens like through during... No, I have to think meiosis or mitosis. When the spindles are tearing apart, it prevents them to tear the chromosomes apart. And so you end up with the, the double pair of chromosomes. And, but there's also other chemicals like aricillin, which is actually a herbicide, but it's safer to use than, and it's more easy to get in many countries than colchicine. And what, what, te do... what technique do you use? Yeah, I'd love to hear more okay. about the technique because I've looked into it for a couple of my projects that yeah. ended up not going anywhere, yeah. but it's, it's a very powerful okay. technique. So in general, what are you doing? You're trying to... You can use either seeds, seedlings, or buds. So we, sorry, we do uh, use the root cuttings because we wanted to have the exact variety, just like in a tetraploid version. And so we prepared a solution of water where we put the ursuline in different concentrations to see like which concentration will work best. So if you're going like on Google Scholar or anything and you're typing in polyploidization and ursuline, you get like different protocols with different concentrations, which gives you kind of an idea which one you can try. Depending on the crop, it will be widely different. Also, mm -hmm. sometimes even the genotype, they won't uh, work as well. So what we did, we worked with someone who did this for a few years in the Netherlands. And he do, does also lots of flow cytomic. So this is a technique where you can show the ploidy levels of different plants. Mm. And so what we did, we did uh, these root cuttings. We put them into uh, this water, with the ursuline. What you want to have is like, you can also do it, as I said, with the seedlings or with seeds, that 50% of those are going to die. So if you have like 50% survival rate, normally you know it's probably going to happen. Uh, then you grow the plants out. Often in the beginning, they are going to be really slow because like you just treated them with herbicide. They won't like it. And they'll show different phenological characters. Like for the raspberries, they had like really thick leathery leaves, stunted crows, and so on. And then we did, we treated the flow cytometry to see if we got like our polyploids. And mm -hmm. you always have to do the numbers game. You just don't do like one plant, but you do like a hundred ones. And then from a hundred, you're happy if you're like 15, which worked. So that's what we did. And then we already pollinated those new. And now, right now we have like the first seeds from this cross, which we will grow out next year's. And maybe I'll come back to the podcast in two or three years. Oh, and wonderful. Tell you if it will, uh, worked or not. <laughs> two quick points for people who yeah. want to try this, who don't have access to a lab to check if it's polyploid. I believe yeah. you can, well, it depends on the species you're working with, but there's usually morphological changes, like plant yeah. parts get bigger and chunkier. So yeah. even if so you can't confirm it, you could still use those modified 
yeah. selected varieties to try doing your pollination and either it's going to work or it isn't. Of course. So depending on the crop you're working with, if you're going to the literature, probably somebody has already done it and you can see which are those typical traits. Yeah. And if you have access to a good microscope, which can also help, so you either count directly the chromosomes, with a, which is kind of difficult, mm. or you're looking at the guard cells, and there are the chloroplasts in the guard cells, and the count should be way higher in those tetraploids than in the diploids. I think that's, so a, tri those... that's a trick that the potato people use quite often to, to pick out their tetraploids. Yeah, so there are a few things. If you have a good microscope, you can see it also on the microscope. But in general, like if you've once seen like a polyploid and a diploid, like in passion flowers, they have also done some polyploids. And now I can see it like they have nectar glands, which are way longer. They have a glow to their leaves and so on. So if you've seen it once, you uh, really see the difference. You get your eye in. Mm -hmm. It's also worth pointing out as well for people who are worried about like nasty toxic chemicals, Arizalin mm -hmm. is actually a natural product that comes from rice or a fungus that grows on rice, I think. Yeah. It's yeah. one of the two. Something like and this. if you do go down this road, do your own research. It does need to be of handled course. with care, like any yep. other herb, concentrated herbicide, but it does originally have a natural origin, yeah. just like the culture scene does. But culture scene can be a little bit more dangerous to handle. I think it's used as a gout medication in very controlled doses. So if you're handling larger amounts of it, you can get into trouble yes. if you get so, overexposed. Uh, just like... <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot for the disclaimer. So both of those are carcinogenic. So really be careful, take protective gloves and so on. Normally, if they're handled in a good way, and if you uh, don't like uh, drink it, or, you should be okay. But <laughs> don't take <laughs> the advice from me. Be careful what you're doing. And there are still toxins. And, uh, so and of, often it comes down to being wary of people around you who may not realize like labeling everything yeah. keeping it under control away from children and pets and people who don't know what it is that's um, a, a really crucial point in doing this kind of amateur slightly above amateur plant breeding techniques sorry oh it, it, just for people doing these kind of slightly okay, yeah, okay, higher yeah, than amateur yeah, breeding yeah, techniques yeah. They, they're achievable but you need to go into them with a degree of care and caution let's think I'm just having a quick look. I've covered some of these questions. I'll edit this out when, when we get to the final episode. No I think we can go for the bonus round questions. So do you want to jump in, Joseph? And, and... Thank, thank you, Raphael and Simon, or Shane. This has been really good. <laughs> um, so Raphael, if you could work wonders with any species, what would you create? That's a good question. I was thinking about it for quite some time. So of course, Going back to Pazziflora, for me, it would be like nice to have like a perfect plant. So, which means a plant which is hardy to at least minus 20, probably minus 25, which is self-fertile, which produce like showy flowers, which stay open for three, four days, which produce tons of delicious uh, fruits, which can be also stored for longer. So that would be like <laughs> for the passion flower. But in general, what I would also like, like having a perennial and hardy version of annual vegetables, such like tomatoes, pumpkins, melons, and so on, or even like tropical fruits like mango or a banana. That would be cool. Would those vegetables, the perennial versions in your climate, be something that you'd maybe protect the rootstock with a little bit of insulation over winter and then it gets an early start in the spring? Yeah. Uh, I think yeah, probably, but for now I haven't figured out. So like you can get it like for Fisalis, you can get uh, like the hardy ones also with quite a few other plants, like I'm working on passion fruit, but for something like uh, tomatoes or pumpkins, I think there are some ways. So, but I haven't uh, figured it out for now because like I'm working with beans and I'm trying to do like perennial beans. But having like those classical vegetables would be also nice. So, so I, I've been working with a lot of inner species tomatoes hybrids. Mm -hmm. And every once in a while, when I pull the plants in the fall, it looks like there's a, a rhizome on the tomato. Okay. And, and they re-sprout after they get froth. And so, you know, something like that might be conceivable. Maybe not for my climate, but, you know, for somebody slightly warmer 
Yeah, um, that would be interesting. Yeah, so could you describe your vision for the future of food in your community? Okay, so in general, I think what I would love to see is not particularly just for food, but in general, that there's way more diversity, like yeah. that we have more different kinds of fruit and vegetables. Like I always love going somewhere and you've not just like one type of standard eggplant or tomato, but like all different kinds of, so I like diversity in the fruit and, and vegetable. And also what I would love to see more people involved in plant breeding as a hobby. I would like it, like it's becoming a hobby, a normal hobby that people do like playing the violin or playing tennis yeah. or whatsoever. So that you have like amateur plant breeders all over and you get like lots of different new varieties. So that would be really cool. Is there much of a legacy of the amateur plant breeding mania that swept Europe in like the late 1800s, I think, is when it kind of erupted? Yeah. Do, do, do people still remember those times? I would say yes and no. So yes, in the sense that in the varieties that we have, there's like, like many like apples. If you look, okay, if I'm going to a German supermarket, I'll have like the Brabern apple, which is just a chance seedling. I have like the Jacobs Fischer apple, which is also found just, so those are not like really professional breeding programs, just like chance seedlings. So you are, you still have those plants around or you have like the plant material in your modern varieties. But I think at least what I experienced in Germany or in Switzerland or in France is that most people don't know a lot about this time. So it's kind of forgotten that there was a time when uh, there were lots of people breeding plants. Oh, hopefully we'll, we'll do our bit to help change that. Yeah. So how do you hope to pass your work on to future generations? So in general, I think as a plant breeder, you're just like one part of a long chain and like I'm working with the crops and with plants and I wouldn't be working with them if someone else wouldn't have eaten those plants, planted them or uh -huh. passed down the knowledge. And so I see myself like as being one part in this long chain and which will continue hopefully in the future. Like I hope to breed some really good passion fruit varieties, but as I already said, there's so much to do, and I hope that after me, there'll be uh, like 10 other people or 100 other people doing the same and bringing way better varieties based on the knowledge I could pass along and maybe also my germ plasm. So that's something I would love to, yeah, to see in the future. Yeah, and that, that comes right back to how you started the the show, saying that you made a contract with your employer that you could mm -hmm. share freely. Yep. And so, so you're automatically putting your work out into the world so that other people can continue your work. Yeah. So for me, this is something really important for on like on a philosophical base, but also uh -huh. on a practical one. The philosophical one is like today we are talking a lot about plant patents and stuff, but like patenting nature for me, it doesn't make any sense. And it's like we've been breeding crops and I, what I'm eating today, I'm benefiting from the work which has been done by hundreds of people from all different kinds of backgrounds uh, in places like the Americas or Asia or wherever. So I couldn't say it's just mine. I'm just like, as I right. said, a part of this uh, <laughs> chain. And the practical one is also like there have been people really doing great work with uh, some crops, but like just in their bubble and then they passed away or something else happened and everything got lost. And mm -hmm. that's just really, uh, I think this is really a yeah, um, big problem. So when I did the work, like when I wrote my book about breeding hardy passion fruit, some people said, but I don't want to keep your secrets for yourself so you can have an advantage and so on. And I get the idea, but I was like, but what happens uh, if I die? So all of this would have been in vain. I prefer like, getting it out there that other people can and do something. And at the end, I can also eat their, their food they are breeding. So everybody will be happy. Right. I would can also you, point out you... that more oh. likely than you dying is having some catastrophe where you lose all of your material. 
which yeah. is very <laughs> easy to do. Yeah, it happens all the time. And if you've given it to 20 other people, you can get it back and start again without having to go all the way back to that awkward position yeah. uh, of not knowing you know, where to start. Yeah. Right. yeah, that's something in which happened also to me. Like uh, you get either like with Passiflora and your collection, you get like bad viruses in it. So you don't want to pass on a virus infected or plants are just dying <laughs> what they are doing so if you have passed it along you can always trying try to get it back so yeah i totally agree with you on this one right uh, can you tell us about your book yeah, yeah final plug um, tell us about how people can get in touch <laughs> with you or read more about your work okay yeah so as i said when i was at the uni i worked on uh, a passion fruit but then I thought, okay, I don't just want it to be like in a university library somewhere tucked away. I want it to be open to the public. So I tried to give it a, like rewrite some parts of it, putting in more illustrations and photos. Doing so, it was originally in German, doing an English translation and so on. And so I published the book. It's not as popular as Joseph's book, but and so I wrote a book which you can find online, like on Amazon, and on breeding hardy uh, passion fruit. I'll there's add the links German to version. the description. So go yeah. and have a look, so, people. So there's a German version, an English version, and also if you're not really good in English, I've also, but just as a PDF versions in uh, Spanish, Russian, Italian, and a few other languages. So. Just contact me and I'll... I would imagine that people who are thinking about doing similar novel domestication projects mm -hmm. in other genera would still get a yeah. lot out of reading your book yeah. to see the strategies yeah. and techniques that you used. There's so your wider audience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, of course. So because like the main idea, you can uh, copy paste for everything. So looking at the genetics, the whole genre, knowing how to find hardy species, edible ones, how to conceive a breeding program, the problems involved and so on. So mm -hmm. this is something universal. By the way, that's something I would love to one day in the future, write a book about like how to domesticate plants, like a hands-on book, uh -huh. because I think this is such an important uh, subject, like just telling people that there are thousands of uh, varieties and or species which are just ready to, uh, for being uh, domesticated and how to conceive it, where to get your germplasm, uh, how to build a breeding uh, program, how to propagate it and so on. So that would be something I would love to do, but I don't have the time right now. I, I'm, actually, I'm actually halfway through writing a book along those lines right now. Okay, so <laughs> even better so I don't have to do it. Great. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for coming and spending time with us and talking about the amazing projects that you're doing. I'm thoroughly inspired. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go out and have a look at my wild, weedy passion fruits a little bit more closely that are, that are all over my goat paddocks. The last question was how people can get in touch with me. So, yes, thank uh, you. You'll, yeah, so you'll find me like on social media, uh, on Facebook, um, uh, LinkedIn and stuff. I also have an email. It's maybe you can put it also in. Yeah, the, it'll be in the description. Don't spam me, but I'm happy to help. I'm happy to exchange. Sometimes I don't answer like in the minute. And it'll take a week because I just get some messages. But I tr really try to encourage people and to exchange. And, and I'm always open for any collaboration of any sort. Brilliant. Well, we'll have to have you back in a few years when um, some more of your crops have grown out. Thanks a lot. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Raphael. Thanks. I'll end the recording there in a minute. If I hit okay. stop recording, it shuts the whole thing down for some reason. But okay. Yeah, okay. thank you again. Thank you so much for that. I, I really appreciate it. You. you weren't easy to find. I had to chase you around for a while before I finally yeah, got, a, got a nibble. No, 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 I had like a lot going on. So <laughs> I thought okay. oh, I should really go and get back to you. And I think, yeah, there would be a lot of other fun subjects to talk about, like the Kivano you mentioned. Uh, that's something I really love. I'm, I'm going to use the last of my eyesight on that when I finally get into it because they're such tiny, you're just, you're just working with little like millimeter long salmon. So it has to be yeah. done though. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Mm -hmm. Because like Kivano for me, this is one of the crops which could be really interesting for your climate. By the way, it's more or less feral in Australia if I get it right. Uh, At least that's, not in my particular it's, location, okay. maybe in, maybe in okay. a few other places. Because yeah, like I, I've read that it's considered invasive in Australia, but... Oh, that's just everything. Until it catches fire. 
and then it's all it's all sorts itself out yeah no because like I, it's like a really great crop for me like it doesn't get a lot of juice you can get like mm. one plant and you have easily 50 fruit and they store at room temperature for like nine months yeah so like for someone who wants to have like fresh fruit out of season which is really great so for me you just need like to improve like taste because most of them are bland, but you have some accessions which are like really better. So you have more acidity, more sweetness and so on. So I do, think you, do can... you have any suggestions about where I can get my hands on some wider genetics? Yeah, so there's this guy. Okay, I just forgot the name because I'm really bad with names. I'll, I'll follow uh, up with it by email. Yeah, or maybe like this. So there are always, what I'm doing is like you have the you have commercial germplasm, then there are seed banks, like I'm relying heavily on seed banks also, but, and there are those specialized people which will travel all around the world and looking for seeds. So I've got a contact yeah. in South Africa who's going to send me a little bit of wild seed, but they're all, yeah. the, the one strain that we have commonly here is actually pretty much semi-feral already. So it, it has a lot of potential. That's the, the first thing I look for at a crop. It's yeah. like, no, this is worth putting more time and energy into. Yeah. But like, so in gene banks also, most accessions are like from South Africa, Zambia and Zimbabwe. So just like from this region, but you'll find it like north to Yemen and Ethiopia and on the West Coast, Benin and so on. Mm. And you have nearly no germplasm available from those regions. Yeah. So I'm very good at, uh... at sending emails to random people and eventually getting somewhere. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> and yeah, no, the, seed, the like... seeds are nice and small. So I've, I've got a better chance of getting my hands on some. Yeah. So <laughs> I got an improved uh, culture world, which I thought was really good. So it's a round white one, which mm. is commercially available in uh, Europe. So it's like faster and it has some better taste. So, but there are also some like with really red uh, flashed ones. Yeah. So I've seen more... pictures of them too. I'm, I'm oh, very, sorry. I'm very interested. I, I was, I'm, I'm very uninspired by cucumbers, but this particular crop, <laughs> I'm like, no, it's the, <laughs> it's the right fit for my conditions. Yeah. Yeah. No, and they are also quite drought tolerant, and also you don't care about like roaming animals because it's so spiny. So yeah, 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 yeah. They'll they'll get crippled. If, the kangaroos will get crippled if they bounce through the Kawano paddock. <laughs> <laughs> it's a landmark. Yeah, we don't get problems with kangaroos here. <laughs> I uh, got just like deers and rabbits. Oh so. uh, yeah, oh, we've all got something to deal with. Uh, but anyway, I better go and check on my dogs that are outside yep. in the dark. I've got five so, at the Thanks moment, a lot so. for having me here. I really enjoyed it and hope it was something uh, worth recording. Absolutely. Oh, Absolutely. And yeah, thank you for staying up to the middle of the night, or beyond midnight, Joseph, yep. to join in. <laughs> thanks a lot. <laughs> 2 a.m. here. <laughs> <laughs> All righty, we better let you go. And yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll be in, I'll be in, well. I'll be, and I'll be in touch by email and I'll send you a link okay. of the, the episode before it goes live so you can just... Give it a final check if you want anything changed. Okay. Thanks okay. a lot. Right. Brilliant. Thank Catch you. Bye. Good night. Bye.